Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check. Mic check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word, providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflection so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace with in our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see. 
the importance of biblical theology. Mm. And folks, welcome to another episode of Theology Matters with the Palous. And um, I hope that as you listen to that song, as I listen to it, well, we hear it every week on the show, but um, this week even in particular, um, some of the issues that have come up in our culture um, have really questioned where we will stand on biblical worldview issues and um, where we will stand or, or, or compromise when it comes to God's truth. So we are excited to have you on another episode of Theology Matters with the Plus. I'm Melissa Plue. Um, Devin will be on later during our second segment. Um, I'm very blessed and happy to be with you um, during our first segment today. We have a great show lined up today with two very excellent guests who I know that you are going to um, be blessed by and who you are going to um, just learn and be encouraged and, and strengthened in your faith through. So we are very, very excited that you decided to join us today. And um, we are uh, it's uh, July in the Carolinas. It's a, a hot time. And um, this morning I actually spent um, quite a, a bit of time at – um, our local, one of our local abortion clinics um, on the sidewalk, um, pleading for life and pleading for mothers to choose life for their children who they um, had come um, with the intentions to abort. And that is uh, part of our, our regular ministry. And um, it was a very difficult morning, um, a lot of hard hearts, but God did work and penetrate some hearts and there were two moms who did choose to save their babies' lives, and they left the, the abortion clinic having not aborted their children. Um, and, and we consider that a praise because had there been no one there, had there been no uh, mobile ultrasound units on the outside on the sidewalk, they would have not had the opportunity or um, they would have, would have not had the encouragement to think twice about their decision of what they were about to do and the faith that the children were about to face. So in light of the news that we're seeing lately um, with Planned Parenthood and the undercover investigation regarding um, the sale of uh, human body, uh, of unborn, unaborted, or unborn children's um, body organs and limbs, um, and I was just especially sad this morning, um, not because um, that Abortion is anything new in this country. It's been legal since 1973. And um, and Devin and I have been in the fight for life for the last um, few years. Um, but it was just a sad reality to hear it um, verbally and casually espoused from a Planned Parenthood doctor um, who had no regrets about that whole process of harvesting human organs so and reselling them. Um, so, um, with that said, it, it was just, it was, for me, I, I felt very heavy this morning and, you know, we all, we need to pray for our country right now. We are, we are in a, a very trying time and we need to really, um, focus on our biblical worldview. We need to know it, to learn it. We need to know theology. We need to know our Bible. We need to be able to stand upon truth. We need to know apologetics, philosophy, all of these areas that can help us when engaged in the culture. Um, and that is one of the reasons that we brought um, our first guest on, who is actually a very a very dear friend of ours for a number of years, um, Pastor Brian Chilton. Um, 
I'm not sure how he exactly met Pastor Bron. Um, I think Devin met him initially. Devin meets a lot of people, <laughs> and he's he's just all over the place, and he's um, a very sociable person. Um, and um, but Pastor Ron Shilton is actually um, the senior pastor at Huntsville Baptist Church um, here in North Carolina, and he earned his Bachelor of Science degree in Religious Studies uh, in Philosophy from Gardner Webb University, which is a great um, a great college that we're um, a, that we know uh, many graduates from. Um, he's currently working towards a Master's of Divinity degree in Theological Studies at Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary in Lynchburg. And we are going to discuss why it is important for the church and for those in the pastorate behind the pulpit um, and, and in leadership in our churches to engage the current issues of our day, um, as well as theology, apologetics, and how that all applies to real life for us today. So, Pastor Brown, are you there, sir? Yes, yes, ma'am. It is a pleasure to be on your show. We appreciate the opportunity. Uh, we're, we're just so blessed to have you. Like I said, you, we consider you a dear friend and someone who we consider to have a lot of wisdom and um, those things that we need <laughs> in our lives as we are, are growing in the grace and, and knowledge of the Lord. So, again, thank you so well, much you for taking that, What's that, sir? I just, I've really been blessed by, by the, your ministry and Devin's ministry and, and just the uh, incredible ministry you have as you guys go out to – uh, these different atheist conferences, and you know, and uh, I've even shared with the congregation that, that we need to have a hundred more Melissa and Devin Pellews uh, being able to do that, and, <laughs> and um, to be able to engage the culture and engage those who have doubts and and who are um, antagonistic towards the Christian faith. Absolutely agree. I don't know if you want a hundred more Devin and Melissa though, because that might be a lot of trouble um, on your hands and and a lot of people's hands. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's let's jump into this. So you know, it was interesting. We got to know you through, you know, just the world of in the community of apologetics, and um, we have a heart for ministry and for the church. We feel like like the church is God's agent to really to to send the gospel out and to use the members of the church um, with their various gifts to communicate the gospel. Um, but you know, yet that isn't necessarily being fulfilled in certain areas. But but go start by just telling us about your testimony, your personal testimony, how you came to faith, and how um, that has kind of shaped your your journey from there. Well, absolutely. I was uh, born a grandson of a pastor and a grandson of a deacon. Uh, on one okay. side, uh, on, on my dad's side, my grandpa was a, was a deacon, and on my mom's side, my grandpa was a pastor. So, I was immersed in uh, in uh, in church from a very early age. Uh, I came to uh, a salvific experience with the Lord very early, right around the age of seven, and and um, just I was actually called into the ministry at the age of right around sixteen. And uh, so, church has always been part of my life, but. Um, as I was uh, a few years into into ministry, um, the Jesus Seminar came out, and they were they were very big. I think Robert Funk and uh, James Dominic Croson, uh, or John Dominic Croson, uh, were two of the uh, individuals associated with that. And they uh, mm-hmm. went on the History Channel and many other places, and were saying that uh, you know you really can't trust the Bible and what the Bible says. You really can't trust. Uh, 
what even Jesus is reported as saying. And I remember going to a local library, and they had a, I think it's called the Five Gospels, if I'm not mistaken. And they had the four Gospels that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, beside a Gospel of Thomas. And oh, wow. throughout all the uh, throughout all the book, they had uh, different verses where uh, Jesus is, is being quoted. And, and some of the verses were in red, uh, which they thought to be genuine. Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, pink was uh, generally reliable, and then gray, and then they had a, about five different colors, I think it was. And okay. throughout looking at that, according to them, the Gospel of Thomas was more reliable than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so I asked some asked some individuals who were very near and dear to me who were um, in the church at that time, uh, asking them, what do I do with this? How can I believe that the Bible is true? And they basically gave a circular mm-hmm. argument saying, well, uh, you just have to trust the Bible because it's the Word of God. And I said, wow. and I asked the question, well, how do I know it's the Word of God? And they said, well, mm-hmm. because it's the Bible. And so it was just that kind of an mm-hmm. argument. And so I thought, you know, if they couldn't give me good answers to this, and here you have Ph.D.-level people telling you that you can't be trusted, then how do I know that I, I can really promote this and teach this to individuals if, if I can't really trust in myself. And so yeah. I actually left the ministry for about seven years uh, mm-hmm. not thinking that there were any good answers. And um, so I, I think this was just the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I remember um, we had just started getting back involved in, in, in church work and some youth work, my, my wife and I. I met my wife during that time. And, and I, ne- I remember having the, com- the compulsion that I needed to go to Lifeway Christian Bookstore in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I thought, I haven't been in a bookstore in five to seven years. Why in the world do I want to go to a bookstore? And so I go to the bookstore, and a few aisles into the bookstore, uh, there it smacks me right between the eyes. There's Josh McDowell's uh, New Evidence that Demands a Verdict, uh, another one of his books, uh, A Reasonable Defense, I think is what it's called, and then Lee Strobel's A Case for Christ. Mm -hmm. I ended up spending $70... (laughs) At the bookstore that yes, day, not preparing yeah, to spend we, anything. Yeah, we've done that easily around our house, so yeah, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so I, I remember sitting down and reading through Josh McDowell's books. That's what I started with, and um, I was just absolutely astonished and amazed to, to see that there were good reasons for holding on to the faith that we have. Right. And then uh, reading Lee Strobel's Case for, Case for Christ, and from his book I was introduced to um, – some of the greats like William, uh, William Lane Craig, Gary Habermas at Liberty University, mm-hmm. uh, many, many others. And I started uh, digging into their resources, into their works, and, and from there it just kind of grew and expounded. And, and I just had a love for apologetics ever since. Well, that you know, that's interesting because your testimony in Devon sounds quite a bit alike. I was not raised in a church, near a church building, any of that. <laughs> Um, but he, um, his family actually, when he was very young, came out of Mormonism. And wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, came out of Mormonism. He was raised in Utah, so they came out of Mormonism. He was about three or four ish, and um, his dad actually went went right to Orthodox Christianity, became a pastor, and because he was very scientifically oriented 
and had a lot of questions about that younger in life that that led to a lot of questions for him. And so um, he didn't have a lot of answers when he was in church and asking church leaders and pastors and those sort of things. So that led to his many years of exodus from the faith and um, a lot of, you know, things that happened in the interim before he um, heard about apologetics and that the truth could be defended and that there were good reasons to follow Christ. So um, that's interesting that your testimonies somewhat line up. Um, I guess my my main uh, concern was was more on the historical level, especially mm-hmm. with um, with concerns of the resurrection of Christ and for you know the the teaching aspect of uh, what the especially the four gospels presents. Mm-hmm. You know how well we can trust that and how well you know because you know that's for for me that was the crux of the issue. You know if if the Bible is not reliable, if we don't trust what it says, then Exactly. Why in the world should I be presenting this to anyone else? So I think well, as it relates to, to ministry, apologetics is critical because if we can't defend why we believe what we believe, then how are people uh-huh. going to take us seriously in anything else we have to say about it? Yeah, and, and I mean, it, I've thought about this, and I'm like, it's not just why should we just believe in this and teach this, but like, why should I get up on Sunday mornings and go to church? Like, why should I invest my life in church and ministry, like, why should I do any of that if this is not really, if there's nothing to undergird this, if if this is just all some sort of a weird theory that can be debunked easily. And with Devin, it was, honestly, it was, um, he watched a a Gary Habermas debate with Dr. Anthony Flew, who's passed on now, and um, he watched that debate one night, and that was what actually led him to Jesus. After years wow. of growing up in the church, after coming out of the Mormon church <laughs> and being in the Christian church for years, that was what actually led him to Christ. And so I think, you know, and I think you hit on something very key here is that we have to realize that people have real questions that need real answers. So how can we, in terms of um, just the church environment culture, how can we cultivate that? And not because I think more more uh, more frequently it's it's um, probably um, looked down upon if you have questions and doubts and things that you want to just talk about, um, which is one of the things that I love about with our ministry with Rasher Christian on the campuses is that our students many times they're away from home, <laughs> they're on the college campus, so they're not in their their home you know church environment. And so they feel free to ask questions, and then we can dig into those together and spend time looking at reasons and answers. And they feel so liberated to be able to do that. And it's sad to me that they don't feel that apart from being in their own, you know, typical environment. So why why is that important? From what I've come across, I think that some people have it in their in their mind that to ask um, questions of God or to, to ask any questions of that sort is almost on the level of being blasphemous. And I remember mm-hmm. having a conversation with a lady one time in church, and I said, you know, that's just certainly not the case. If you look throughout all the Bible, especially in the Psalms and, you know, in other 
especially in, in the Psalms, you know, you sometimes have people like King David raising his fist in the heavens. Even the prophet, the prophet Habakkuk is a great example, asking God, right. why? Why are you allowing these things to happen? You know, right. and God gives them answers. Right. Now, it may not be the answer that they want <laughs> or the answer that they right. desire, especially in the case with Job. But, you know, God does provide answers. And I think um, mm-hmm. in, in the case of uh, with, with what you've told me about yourself and Devin, and in my case as well, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it, it took, it took it, God took seven years to bring me those answers, but he still gave me the answers that I, that I, mm-hmm. that I asked uh, to the questions that I had. I mean, but um, I think that's part of the problem. I think, I think sometimes people think that it's wrong to ask these questions, that it somehow impedes faith. But I think that comes probably because they have a bad uh, in definition of what faith is to begin with. Um, let's, talk about, let's talk about that because I, I, I totally agree with you there because um, asking questions is considered a lack of faith. When In actuality, right. in any other area of your life, if you ask questions, you're not considered to be bad to do that. <laughs> you know, we're encouraged to ask questions in other areas of our lives, but when it comes to um our faith in Christ, we're like, if you ask questions, oh, that's that's a sin or something. So let's talk about what, what faith is. Or what what well, you know, a, faith is. Absolutely. And I think that you know, if you if you look at the Greek term, you know, pistos, uh in in the New Testament it is it's talking about something that can be relied upon or even the word aletheia, which is uh, you know, truth is that which is in accordance with reality. So I don't mm-hmm. think biblical faith is. I heard one person say that faith is uh, jumping off a cliff and, and and hoping to find something there. Well, I don't think that's the case at all. I think right. uh, faith is knowing something to be true. You know, knowing that there's there's a good deal of evidence, you know, supporting that that claim. And then, obviously, the the experience that one has, you know, solidifies it. I mean, I think you can have. Um, Ninety percent or ninety-five percent assurance that something is true, and that experiential aspect of it, you know, it, it mm-hmm. fills in the gap to bring you to one hundred percent. So, of course, right. to it. So, I think it's um, a trust, a dependency upon something that there's reasons for believing in, and um, and of course, obviously, that experiential aspect, uh, you know, adds, you know, extra right. depth well, to it as well. It's not a it's not a either or experiential versus knowledge and researching the answers, but it can be a both and situation where you oh, absolutely understand and know what you're placing your faith in, and you completely experience that, and you experience God changing your heart and renewing you. Absolutely, you know, and mm-hmm. I think even the whole aspect of that compulsion of the spirit and and the way that God puts us in the circumstances that he does, you know, mm-hmm. it, it adds a further depth to the faith that we can have, that relational faith that we can have with, with God through Christ. Right. That's that's very, very key. What Now, you know, I talked earlier about some of the things that I'm dealing with personally with, you know, ministry, with the, the abortion ministry that we do, or the pro-life ministry that we do, reaching out to those who are abortion-minded and trying to get them to really think about their choices and, and what they're doing um, to choose life for their children and adoption for their children even. Um, so in light of current events that are going on, which things are just 
things are just escalating at a rapid level before our eyes. And I can't imagine as a pastor, um, you know, dealing with people's questions and thoughts and these sort of things, um, convictions, while all this is going on. Because during our lifetime, I mean, things have just progressed so rapidly um, to the the negative of, of biblical values and worldview. So how does this relate to um, having a knowledge of theology, the Bible, and apologetics? How does that relate to how we um, interpret and answer current events? Because from my perspective, I'm seeing a lot of opportunity to discuss these events with other people because it's, it's what's on the news. It, it's the you know, it's, it's the issues of the day. So how how is that? How is this all related? Well, there again, I think the a theology, having a good theological grounding and apologetic um, background as well, is is absolutely key. Um, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because just this, uh, yeah, this is either this past weekend or the weekend before. Uh, yeah. There was a news article that came out in a local newspaper, uh, is the Winston Salem Journal, where a guy had um, he had a an editorial uh, he had a piece where he was basically saying that he, he presented the Bible as if there were different traditions and it was asking the question you know which tradition can you trust it was almost like a Jesus seminar all over again except this was concerning the Old Testament instead of the New and um, yeah there were people who were coming to me even my mother in law she came to me asking you know what's this all about is there any truth in this and if I had not had the exposure to say like some of Paul Copan's books and things of this nature, that then I really would have have had a harder time answering those questions than than I did. And, and basically what it all stemmed down to is uh, a lot of those verses that the guy quoted were, were taken out of context. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely, it's just, you just got to have it anymore. <laughs> I mean, just no way to put it. I mean, theology Why? grounds you. And it also gives us the assurance of knowing, you know, that God is sovereign. He is over all this. Uh, nothing took him by surprise. And, and we still have the promise that in the end, you know, he's going to work all things to good. We may not know how that's going to come about. But, uh, I mean, it may not be that things for us right now are good. But eventually it's all going to work out for, for, for his glory and for his honor. And that's something mm-hmm. that we can be grounded upon. You know, these things may take us by surprise, but, you know, it blesses my heart to know that God knew all this stuff was going to happen before it even took place. So it's it's no surprise in the kingdom of God. Right, he did. And, you know, being equipped or not, it, this is still the Lord's universe, you know, and we can definitely get equipped and know the truth and um, and spread the truth. And that's a great opportunity that we have um, that I want to encourage our listeners to, to know that, you don't have to be defenseless when these discussions are going on. There are really good answers out there. There are good resources out there. And you can actually engage in the culture today um, in these discussions. You don't have to be silent or sidelined, but you can still trust God. It's not an either-or situation. God knew that these times were coming um, and he's placed us in these times, and we can be active. Um, or we can retreat, and I, my vote is to be active, 
don't know about you, Absolutely. but I vote to be active. And the thing about it is that, that God chose to put us, all of us, in this time for a particular reason. So that must be that means yes. that we have yes. a certain gift or a certain talent to do a certain work that He's called us to do. So Absolutely. this isn't a time for cowardice. We gotta, we gotta, you know, be brave and and have courage in the Spirit of God and move forward with, with, with what He's called us to do. And and as you yes. said, I, you said something very intriguing there. I mean, one thing that I did is after I learned some of the information and I got a little more involved in apologetics, I went back to the atheist arguments and some of the uh, skeptics, and I really uh, applied their own truth claims against themselves, and it really fell apart. I was able to finally, you know, look back and say, you know, the things that they're saying, you know, doesn't hold water. Uh, Mm -hmm. For instance, the Jesus Seminar, you know, they had nothing to base their claims on. I mean, it was just their opinion. They didn't have any evidence whatsoever. And so you really see that Christianity has a firm foundation upon which it stands, and and it it can stand to scrutiny and and remain standing. We absolutely do. So, Pastor Brian, we totally appreciate you being here with us and just all of these things that you share with us today and the encouragement that you share with us today, and we um, are going to have you on again. Sounds great. Yeah, so thank you so much. We're thankful for your congregation there at Huntsville Baptist, and um, we are going to go ahead and go to a commercial break. And what we're going to do is Devin's going to come on next. And uh, in the second segment, you know, the reality of having a kid who's sick right now (laughs) is what we're dealing with. But, yes, the Lord has been so gracious to us, and um, we will be right back with you and um, appreciate your time with us, and we'll have you back on uh, shortly. Absolutely. God bless you, brother. Thank you, too. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Frank, is same-sex marriage wrong apart from the Bible? Apart from what the Bible says, yes, I think you can make a very good argument that it's not a good idea to support same-sex marriage regardless of what the Bible says. And I think the first thing you need to point out is you need to ask people who support same-sex marriage, what is the purpose for which the government is involved in marriage at all? It's not because two people love one another. Well, you know, when you go for a marriage license, they don't ask you, do you love the guy or the gal or whatever? The reason the state is involved in marriage is to perpetuate and stabilize society. That's the reason. I mean, we love all sorts of people in our lives, and we don't call those relationships marriage, or the government doesn't call those relationships marriage. The only reason the government says that marriage between a man and a woman is going to be considered marriage is because it brings great benefits to society and particularly children. It perpetuates and stabilizes society. Here's the fundamental problem. If you equate same-sex relationships with opposite-sex relationships and call them marriage, what you're doing is you're telling society that marriage has nothing to do with children because gender is irrelevant to marriage at that point. You see, where same-sex marriage is put into place, you don't have two types of marriage. You don't have same-sex marriage and natural marriage. You just have genderless marriage. And so marriage is seen by society as something that has nothing to do with children. 
And when marriage has nothing to do with children, there's no institution in society to protect children. That's the ultimate problem, Bobby. And the problem is becomes a, a, a bigger issue when you consider that the law is a great teacher. Many people think whatever is legal is moral and whatever is illegal is immoral. So if you teach people that heterosexual and homosexual relationships are equally the same in terms of marriage, then you're teaching them that marriage is just about coupling. It's just about the romantic desires of adults. And so when that happens, society has lost the fundamental brick in the foundation of civilization. The fundamental brick is the biological two-parent family. If society does not say that's the special relationship, mm -hmm. then society is ultimately going to crumble. When the bricks of a, of a building begin to crumble at its foundation, the whole building comes down. All right, folks, welcome back, and we're going to move into the second portion of our section, and we're going to be looking at the book, Right for You, But Not for Me, A Response to Moral Relativism by Stephen Garofalo, and uh, actually Dr. Norman Geisler wrote the foreword to it, and uh, really, really enjoyable book, so let's, let's uh, introduce you to to uh, Stephen here, he's an apologist. Uh, he earned a master's in apologetics with an em emphasis in Islamic studies from Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte. Uh, he speaks at conferences and churches and relig on religious and moral issues and is the founder of the National Apologetics uh, Training Center. Uh, and he's going to be here to discuss this book. So let's go ahead and bring Stephen on. Stephen, are you there? Yes, sir. How are you doing, Devin? <laughs> oh, man, I'm, doing I'm, well. pray, I'm praying for the little one, and I'm praying for you guys, too, for sleep. <laughs> hey, I appreciate that. That always helps. <laughs> <laughs> sleep, they say, is uh, overrated anyway. So. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, let's, let's talk a little. Steve, how did, you, how did you get into apologetics? Were you raised in a Christian home, or? Um, yeah, uh, well, I was I, my father's from Sicily, so I'm a first-generation American in here, and I love America. And uh, so, being Roman Catholic is, uh, can you imagine, from an Italian from from the mainland there, you know, it was in the DNA. I mean, we had the red wine at the table and the white wine, actually, for that matter. But uh, you did the whole bit, and we. Uh, I grew up. It's a long story, but. Uh, my father passed young, and I used to go to the Catholic Church, and I used to say, I'm going to, by myself, I'd ride my skateboard and my bicycle and say, I want to meet God today. And, uh, and you know, eventually that didn't that didn't pan out. I read the, they did give me a Bible, and I read it. I think that surprised them a little bit, at least for that Catholic Church. And uh, it was a New Testament, and I, I pulled the priest off the, the curb three times to ask him, you know, about one book, which was Revelation, which was rather frightening for us teenager, and uh, he told me it's just a bunch of signs and symbols, and, 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 and my feeble logic, you know, um, uh, at a young age, I just kept thinking, well, if you leave the church parking lot and you disregard the stop sign, you'll probably get killed, and so, stop, you know, signs do have meaning, and anyways, from there forward, long story, 
Um, Hank Hanegraaff was uh, I was listening to when I lived in Washington D.C. Hank Hanegraaff was uh, was uh, on the radio and said, "This is the best. Uh, this is the best uh, seminary." And you know, blah blah blah. Next thing you know, I'm in I'm in Charlotte going for my master's in apologetics. So here I am today. And we changed uh, recently changed the ministry name. We still have the National Apologetics Training Center, and we also have Reason for Truth. And that's what we use. A little easier. We have apologeticsprain.org, okay. but now, yeah, reason for truth. People can remember that dot org is a, is a lot easier. So it's more human. But we use both a little, primarily. Yeah, a little shorter, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did you get into interested in the topic of uh, moral relativism? You know, I was asked by uh, one of the largest churches in America, uh, not the to address the entire church, but a group within the church had asked me to address the issue of a Christian's response to moral relativism. So I I started doing the research, oh boy, maybe eight months I worked on the research at least. Um, And when I I, I got all the books on moral relativism, and they were very good, but I felt uh, the the subject wasn't treated as the way I thought it. I said, this is an important subject. It's the subject that wags the tail of all other subjects, right? I mean, so right. of everything going on in culture. So I, you know, I, I did tons of research, did the presentation, and then I decided, you know, I'd been wanting to write a book and tried to write a couple books. But, you know, unless the Lord guides you, you're not going to really get a very good book at it if you get one at all, if you can have the, stam- you know, the stamina to complete the thing. So I did. I worked three years like a fiend, continuing to research and uh Lost a lot of sleep and a little bit of my health, and uh, and and came up with this book. And it initially was titled "A Response to Moral Relativism." You know, uh, moral absolutes in a relative age. And then, you know, last minute uh, we changed the title to be again right for you, but not for me. People, people again understand it. So, but that's how kind of, you know I, I, the book is really my passion. I think being Italian as well, uh, in coming from a Catholic background, the Catholics are very strong on natural law and logic, you know, not to say Protestants aren't, but, you know, that's a, that's the, a heavy area of emphasis, and I'm I, I'm I'm just guessing, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm surmising that that had to do with, you know, my, my DNA of being passionate about the moral law and about natural law and that type of thing. That's good. Give us, maybe give us a kind of a, maybe a brief description here before we start going through the book. Uh, natural law and uh, the moral law. How would you how would you describe those? Yeah, um, well, the founders of our country called um, they called what we see as as un, the evidence for God in nature's law, and um, and then you've got moral law. And what happens is nature's law, or what our founders called na- nature's law, we called natural law, are things like. Um, and they'll say there's two books. You got the, the scripture, you know, you've got special revelation, and then you got general revelation. And kind of general general revelation, revelation is similar to natural law. But natural law is basically God is seen in nature and the laws of nature. You know, like the, the percentage. Uh, you know, I just heard your your advertisement with Frank uh, Turek there. You know, if you look at, it, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. They talk about the different. Um, You've got different categories of, um, of of evidences for God. I mean, for example, you know, you need if we had just a little bit more oxygen, uh, 
we'd all be dead. If we had a little bit less oxygen, we'd be dead. If we had a little bit more, if the, if the earth was tilted more than so many, a few more degrees, to, you know, in one direction you'd burn up, the other direction you'd freeze up. You look at the clouds, you look at creation. I mean, you look at creation of man alone. Then you think about then the creation of woman. I mean, if you were going to have some kind of spontaneous combustion, how would you have that done twice over and then they both work with each other? So God is evident in nature, and that's called nature's law. And um, Now, what happens is the moral law connects God's principles, God's principles to the hearts and minds. And remember in Romans 2, 14 to 15 says, for when the Gentiles do not have the the law by na- by nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience which is their mind also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when well I'm sorry ex- excuse them yes them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What they're saying here is the Jews, you know, they were given the law. The Jews were given the Ten Commandments and, all, you know, the laws and, and whatnot. And the Gentiles, they didn't have that, you know. That, and so, but isn't it interesting how even the, the Gentile had that written on his mind and a heart, and, and his heart, and how is that? That's called nature's law. In other words, we know certain things are right, and we know certain things are wrong. Uh, remember C.S. Lewis said, when he was talking about the problem of evil, he was an atheist, and he said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But he was honest, and he said, but how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? You know, you look at people, even even liberals. I mean, how many people look at the news and see the atrocities of people being slaughtered and raped and go, you know that's up, that's right for them, but not for not you know it's right for you, but not for me. You know, not many. Right. If they're honest, they know it's wrong. Matter of fact, I would assert that all humans know it's wrong. It's just that, you know, as Dr. Geiser said in class, if you really want someone's honest answer, ask them a question off the bat without giving them time to prepare. Uh, I did that with a um, with a Muslim friend of mine in uh, in Charlotte, and I asked him. I said, Hey, is is apostasy punishable by death? And without blinking an eye, he said, yes, Steve, yes. Three times a mass question over about two or three weeks, he said, yes. Yeah. Then he came back weeks later, and he goes, hey, no, 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 no. I don't think apostasy is punishable by death. You know, exactly what Dr. Geisler taught me in class. It's when we have time to think about the answer that will skew it with sinfulness and lie. And, right. you know, people say, well, how do you know he's lying? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make that assumption here. You know, he answered one way without blinking an eye. So, right. um, so that's that's using the moral the, the moral law, and, and people know that. So, all right, good enough. That's good stuff. Um, so as we look at your book, you have the, the introduction. I think it's probably a, a good place to start. Uh, why uh, why does morality matter? Yeah, why does morality matter? I, I heard you. I heard uh, again Frank speaking when we uh, on here, and he and he hit it right on the nose on the commercial a break. And it, why does morality matter? Because if you look in, in the different chapters of the book, t- 
tie the, all this in. We talk about where more relatives and starts it starts in the garden, and then you see the philo- a little bit of philosophy in there. But why does it matter? Well, fast forward to the 1960s. The chapter is called Welcome to the 1960s. We had a Western-thinking, logical, Christian, Judeo-Christian ethic and morality in, in this nation. And what happens is when you have the sexual revolution, that's a moral question. That's a moral issue. So why does it matter? Well, let's look at that, all right? I was born in the mid-60s. I kind of remember this as a kid. But the sexual revolution came in, and you had a rebellion against God, against authority, police, military. And um, and from there, what happens? You you have the sexual revolution. Well, when you have the sexual revolution, that, that automatically, what do you think that impacts? What do you think the next institution is marriage? It's just natural. If you have a sexual revolution, all of a sudden everyone's having sex with each other. That affects right. marriage. It's just natural progression. From there, you, you, what do you have? You have the kids, the offspring. You get latchkey kids. You know, I remember that. I remember when I was a kid, latchkey kid was this new thing. When I was really young, there were no latchkey kids. There just wasn't even a concept. And then, you know, it wasn't to the 70s that I remember them saying, man, they put these little lad, they sell them in a store, these little things put on your wrist. You know, and they were, they'd put them around their neck or around their wrist, and, you know, that was their latchkey, and they were called latchkey kids. And so from there you have, uh, then you, you, you begin to devalue marriage at that point, you know, and you have uh, divorce comes into play. And all of a sudden, divorce rates shooting through the roof, and you got latchkey kids that are unattended by their mother or their father. You have the, the you know, the, 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 the movement where women start going to work all the more, and so... Kids are on their own. Well, fast forward it to today. You, you get then you get Roe v. Wade. You get abortion, and what happens is each. Why does morality matter? Is because of this. It started there. It's moved into corporate ethics. When I got out of college, and then it's moved into government ethics now, and now it's moving towards the church. The church is the last standing institution. That and, and it's and it's hanging in the balance, and the church has to make a decision. If it's going to stand strong on God's word or not, if it if if it decides it will not, it's lights out. It's lights out for this nation. You say you heard it here. It's lights out. You're either going to have revival or it's lights out. And when I mean lights out, God's judgment and God's judgment is basically, you know, most people think of God's judgment as a big fire coming out of the sky. That's in, Really, he he can do that. Uh, you know, you saw Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood. You saw things like that. But if you look more often than not, how he dealt with the Israelites, his judgment is a release of of his hand of blessing. I was just reading in scripture about how he you know he keeps all things together, and when he takes his hands off a nation, off a personal's person's life, things begin to get unraveled. And and we're already heading there. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to disagree. You can turn on the news today. I could tell you almost every day you get two or three things that when I was a kid, you didn't get every two to three years such an event. And so the whole place, the wheels begin to come off, and then you, you, your society crumbles. And that's, that's, that's why morality matters is because morality is doesn't – there's no such thing as – see, morality and ethics are kissing cousins. And um, they're 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 de- they're prescriptive. They you know 
ethics kind of say, or morality says what you ought to do. And, you know, when you have an ethics commission, it kind of is prescriptive. It tells you, hey, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. And there really are no such thing as medical uh, ethics. There's no such thing as uh, political ethics. There's no such thing as sexual ethics. There's just ethics, how they apply to all these areas. So when you take the ethics and morality and you begin to degrade them away from God's moral standard, then every sing- there's no place to hide. Every single corner of the earth or every you know, culture of people's lives and um, the world as we know it begin to just kind of come unglued. Wow. So that is exactly why. Yeah. Well, it's exactly why morality, uh, exactly why morality does matter. Let me me ask, just kind of throw this at you. Um, Just kind of off the cuff here, but uh, I think you can probably um, handle it like like you're not. (laughs) (laughs) With the, with the recent developments here with uh, with the gay marriage and, and that, um, you know, my pastor recently preached a really good sermon on uh, the importance of Christians being involved in politics. And, um, you know, I think he makes a good balance of, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to get too carried away and think politics can, you know, can save your soul. But at the same time, uh, we have to be involved because it affects everything. So with, yeah. like, for example, the, the gay marriage, there's an issue of, of morality there, uh, and now that being the law of the land, some people will say uh, we should just preach the gospel. We shouldn't yeah. uh, worry about getting involved in politics, uh, etc. We just need to just we just need to just preach the gospel. Uh, how do you yeah. how do you respond to that when you hear that? Yeah. Well, first of all, here's my first question to that. To people who may think otherwise, my first and I like to ask, like Jesus did, right? Because we want to be scriptural according to that. Because that's he's a, kind of a good, good, He's a good guy to, to follow, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, and and and, 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 you, and see, already the gentleman who you're speaking about—not your pastor—but the common common assertion is right. that, yeah, uh, Christians and, and um, Christians and. Uh, in, in politics don't mix. Well, well, first of all, uh, if Christians in politics didn't mix, we wouldn't be here in the first place, not in America. Because, I mean, that's that's why they came here. The Mayflower Compact was very clear. They, you know, King James, they came here for the furtherment of Jesus Christ. So, you know, um, religions and, and politics do mix. Number two, uh, people will say, you're right, hey, Two things we we ought not talk about, right? Politi- poli- politics and religion. They're really, but here's the crux of the matter. To answer your question, Jesus didn't limit his command to be salt and light. I mean, my gosh, we should engage in both evangelism and political actions. Uh, and and there's and if you look at the founders of our country, they did just that, and they right. they um you know they did that. And if you look at the you know if you look at the you know scripturally, you look at the uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's very clear. Um, I mean, let's take a few people. Um, let's take a look at um, some biblical support that we, that we as Christians ought to be involved with politics. I mean, you got Joseph, right? I mean, he, he's sitting, he's the highest office after Pharaoh, right? I mean, wasn't he a, I mean, my gosh, number two? That's basically almost like the <laughs> vice president. 
Uh, Moses, right. could, where did he go? Did he go to like did a candy shop? Did he go to a local synagogue? No, he stood boldly before the president, the pharaoh um, of his time. You look Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer for the king. He had a huge position. I used to, by the way, I used to think that the cupbearer was some guy that said, hey, man, how you doing? Give me a little drink. You know, I didn't realize, evidently, these guys were, um, cupbearer was a real politically high position. Was a high position. And what they basically did was, um, you know, obviously they tasted the wine and the food before the king. So if they died, I guess. But because of that, the king really had to trust them. So, I mean, Nehemiah was really close in the political process. You got Mordecai. We all know that. With uh, He was in second rank, the king uh, 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 Harasarius uh, of, per- of Persia, um, Esther, remember, uh, 10-3. And then you got Esther. You got a, a woman. She was, man, gosh, if, if Esther didn't make a stand, you know, there would be no Jewish people today. And then you got John right. the Baptist. I, I like that. It's one of my best examples, my favorite examples. He, he sits with Herod Antipas. He has a loving confrontation speaking specifically of the sins of his life, right? I mean, he's talking about what? His brother Philip taking his brother Philip's wife, Matthew 14, 3 to 4. I mean, that's a moral question. I mean, he's, he's hitting him square right. in the eye. I mean, you think Perfect. about it. John the Baptist could have given him a pat answer. He could have. He, matter of fact, I assert in my book, because I talk about this in my book, that, that John the Baptist could have easily softened his approach to Herod and, and possibly obtained a posh position as his personal minister. All he had to do was tell him the things he wanted to hear, right? I mean, we see that in politics. Just turn the news on, you'll see that. So um, he didn't, and he lost his head for it. So, you know, here's the bottom line. Um, at the end of the day, Christians are called to be salt and light. And there's a lot of scripture that tells us when we lose our salt saltiness because the saltiness what is salt what does salt do salt right it cleans in some senses but it preserves and we're called mm-hmm. here to preserve what is right and what is good so i get passionate yeah, about people, that because they think it's, you know people people get that uh, assumption that's like we're supposed to be salt and light uh in every area except politics you know and it's yeah. your government you know and i um I think Dr. Turk does a great job when he shows, uh, he says, you know, when people ask him whether or not, you know, it's important to do politics, uh, does it affect preaching the gospel, he pulls out the two net, the two maps, right? Of, yeah. uh, what is it, like North Korea or something? Yeah. Um, yeah and you, you see, you know, one side is completely shut down, uh, and the other, you know, uh, because... It's it's not illegal to preach the gospel. It's lit up, and there's missionaries and yeah. etc. So that's good. Yeah, I'm 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 glad that uh, glad you're able to talk and, about that a little bit. Yeah, and let me mention one more thing. Uh-huh. Now, let's look at Jesus himself. I mean, he interacted with tax collectors. That's equivalent to today's IRS. I mean, he upset right. money changers. I mean, they were they were very politically tied, and he entered he interacted with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were the political mm-hmm. heads. Of the Jewish people, and he and he he spoke directly to Pilate. Right? He said, and he asked him, "What is truth?" And uh, man, that's it's my, you know it's uh, Devin. There's a great the way the book is laid out. It I have a lot of information from the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a great organization, and um, we I outline in there how we got to this false assumption that politics and religion don't don't mix. 
in um, you you might be familiar with uh, the Johnson Amendment. You remember President Johnson? In, mm-hmm. And before President, before you had President Johnson, um, you had Senator Johnson. He was a senator first, and he uh, he sought to um, he had some left leaning communist views, and he was being called out by none other than what churches, 501c3 specifically. So on a hot July, July 2nd, 1954, he, without taking a formal vote, just with a yay or nay thing there, I think, he, uh, anonymous, so he didn't know who voted for what, he basically took any one-by-one vote the, um, the, uh, the, the Johnson Amendment. And what that says is basically any 501c3, which is what Russia Christie is, what churches are, what I am, if they endorse or criticize a candidate specifically, they can lose their lose their um, 501c3 status. Now, that's basically the beginning of it. And what they were telling churches were, you no longer could talk about politics. Well, and, and since 1954, people have bought that you know, line and sinker, man, it's been bit. And so by now, you have a lot of pastors who say, we just don't want to involve with that. Okay? When in, but guess how many 501c3s have lost their 501c3 status? How many do you think since since 1954? I don't know if you want to take a wild guess. Right. Zero. <laughs> because the Alliance Defending Freedom does what they call the, the pulpit initiative, and every each year, they Every account, every uh, election cycle, they type up all the sermons, you know, and they send them off to IRS. And ACLU is chomping at the bit, and they wouldn't take it because they know you have to deny a pastor his freedom of speech. How do you do that? Right. So. Wow. Anyway, that's, that's a long answer to a short question, but but it, there's a reason. There's a way. What I try to explain in the book is really to explain to people how you get here. If you don't know how we got here, you won't know how to get back. You know, right. they just know how to deal with it on a surface level. So that that'll kind of have you have you uh, have you read uh, Wayne Grudem's uh, Politics According to the Bible? His massive. Uh, I I footnoted it quite a bit in my book. Matter of fact, okay. I use a lot of Wayne Grudem stuff in my book. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's that's good. All right. As well as William yeah. William Federer's got some good material as well, amongst others. What's the name of that What's the name of that book again? Which Which one? When you're talking with the politics, uh, the 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 uh, Wayne Grudem. Uh, about... I thought you said I, I might have been confused. I thought you had said you had wrote a book uh, dealing oh, no, with I, the I, issue. I used his book. Yeah, I used his okay. book. Okay. So my okay. book, you'll see, my book is is thoroughly. We got over 300 footnotes in it, and we've got we use Wayne Grudem's uh, material in the in the right for you but not for me book. It, it, yeah, and it, it really okay. summarizes. Okay. I was confused. I, I I thought you were saying that you had uh, possibly written another book on. on yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, I do. I am writing another book. It should be out by the fall, but. <laughs> oh really? What not is yet. it? You uh, can't talk about that, huh? <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not we're we're in the just getting into the editing phase, but um, yeah, uh, I got a couple that we're working on. I'll I'll send you a copy, obviously, when we get it. Yeah, we'll have you back and and do do another show. So I appreciate it. Let's uh let's let's do this. Let me let me open up the phone lines and then we'll we'll keep proceeding through the interview. 
those who are interested uh, would like to call and talk to Mr. Garofalo, uh, the number to call is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Let's uh, hit Chapter 1 here, defining our terms. I guess that's important. What is moral relativism? I don't know. That's a good question. No, I'm kidding with you. Um, moral relativism basically deals with uh, it deals with right what is right as opposed to wrong what is wrong and it's the philosophical belief that um, denies moral absolutes which obviously and my and and any kind of moral standard which is God the only unmovable mover right so let me repeat that morality deals with what is right as opposed to what is wrong to begin with. Secondly, it's the philosophy that denies moral absolutes in any kind of moral standard. That's where people get hung up. I I can sit here for hours and tell you stories about people who deny that 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 truth, absolute truth doesn't exist and absolute absolute morality or moral absolutes don't exist and you have and you and you have to be arrogant to think that they do. So, you know, my first question I asked them is, well, what about um Sandy Hook. What do you think about that? You know, the kids, the kindergartner kids, poor little kids that get mowed down. That kid who came in and killed a bunch of kindergartner kids. And um, I say, is that right or wrong? And they kind of, you get the deer in the headlight. I used to use it back in this more civilized day, say, do you exist? You know, they see the truth yeah, kind of yep. start with truth. Yeah. It, 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 I kept getting, I'm not certain. <laughs> yeah. 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 I that's question today. Oh, got something like well. So if a guy comes in here and puts a pipe upside your head, you really, you really nothing's done, nothing's nothing wrong has happened because you're yeah. not certain you exist. So you know, you know, so the Sandy Hook thing gets a little bit more clarity there. So right. in the process, by the way, going back to moral relativism, by default it denies an ultimate moral standard, which is God. It, it exists really. It, it, people will say I believe in God, but I don't believe in absolute moral standards, then you have to, then what does God stand for then? What does he say? Then you really don't believe what he says because it's in Scripture. Right. And it's in, nat- and it's in natural law. It's moral law. It's on our hearts. Remember the, I just quoted Romans. It, it, it's on our hearts. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that going in and killing a bunch of kindergartners, eating their, drinking their milk and eating carrots is wrong. We all know that. We all know it's wrong to beat your wife and to rape and to to kill people senselessly and to steal their things. We know that's wrong. Everybody knows that's wrong. Yep. You don't have to you don't have to, you don't have to go down and pick, check out the legal code. No, every culture. Some people yeah, will say, we well, look at some people will say look at Islam. Oh, you see that I said, "No, if you go to any Middle Eastern country and you kill somebody's brother, or sister, or wife, or mother, mom, or dad, or friend, matter of fact, by you know they had by under their legal code. Matter of fact, they're just going to go and kill you. They don't believe it's right. You know that martyrdom is not is a religious issue. Is is it's not an issue of of morality. It, right. Indirectly speaking, indirectly it is obviously. Would you say that that moral relativism is kind of the dominant view today, especially like on uh, the college, you know, Ratio Christie, director at Winthrop, and um, the other ratio chapter directors would probably say the same thing that it's kind of the dominant view, um, and it's it's like you say. I think if if 
if you ask them the question, um, for example, female circumcision or something like that, if you just ask them without the context of, you know, trying to show moral, that there is an objective, you know, moral standard, uh, they all know this, you know, but it's yeah. like as soon as they realize uh, you're posing a problem for their position, then the well, you know, it's right for them type of a thing. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. frustrating. It's yeah, very frustrating to, to have a conversation with people like that, you know. Yeah, Richard, I remember Dr. Richard Howe. Uh, my very, very first class in seminary, 2000, year 2000, fall, I sat in his class, and he, he made the case that, you know, some of the most literate biblical scholars are not believers in Jesus Christ. And I said, how is that? And we we got talking, and, you know, I'm like the, I'm like the little boy, like the six-year-old, you know, well, why? Well, why? And so if I, I'm like the only guy left, and I'm waiting later, and I said, well, you know, if you're, if you're, how do you deal with somebody who keeps denying, you know what I'm saying, truth, logically? That's kind of what I was asking him. And he said, you can't rationalize, and I put this in my book, you can't rationalize with an irrational person or a person acting irrational. That's just the bottom line, you know? Uh, I can't right. tell you how many people is, is, is absolute truth or absolute morality, is, does, it, does it exist? Do you exist? Well, I'm not certain. I mean, what do you say to that, right? I mean, you're not giving a rational answer. So that's that's a logical question. So you, what you see now, the tough part is the millennials. Reaching the millennials, which is where the ratio Christie is at, you know, the high schoolers and the and the um, and, and I taught the high school level for three and a half years for apologetics. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Calvary Church, and what was the, it was it was amazing because you have high school kids that they compartmentalize. And, you know, you saw compartmentalization in the cults for a long time. Like, like for example, you get the Mormons, you know, they Joseph um, Smith said, hey, you know, the Book of Mormon is perfect and it's complete. And yet they've had, I don't I think there are over 4,000 changes now in it, starting with the fact that they didn't let black people in the church. It used to be, you know, I mean, <laughs> hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> what did that change? Yeah, you know, I mean, how did if, if it was perfect, it was complete. How, how did that get redacted, you know, or changed on here? But there's a lot more, there's thousands of examples that way. Well, now you're seeing that with kids. You're seeing kids who the younger generation thinks abortions really mean. So the Roe v. Wade is actually kind of going in reverse finally. But they support same-sex marriage and homosexuality. Right. So they, see what I'm saying? So they read the Bible. And they take what they want, and they leave what they what they don't want, and and um, it, it's it's that's probably the biggest challenge, and and part of that is because there's if there's no absolute truth, and no moral absolutes, which by the way is a byproduct of postmodernism. If you go at my website, I have a, um, a talk on uh, reclaiming culture for Christ, and I talk about that postmodernism is just a, is just a um, a byproduct, really, or uh, of, or, or it creates a byproduct called deconstructionism, which is it deconstructs moral absolutes, truth in Scripture, but then it wants to reconstruct it in a way it wants to be reconstructed. See what I'm saying? So that's where the right. kids are today. They've been they they have gone through deconstruction of moral absolutes and truth to think that you know what. And and what happens is a byproduct of that. 
because they think that way, once you think relative of morality, by nature, you, you really can't think. It's impossible to think of relative relativism. It's 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 hard, if not impossible, to buy in the moral relativism and not and then be an absolute truth person. And then once you once you take those two out, then that means that the truth of the Bible is relative, right? So you you can kind of make scripture say what you want it to say, and that's that's a problem. That's where we're at now. Is the parts of the church are being infected with the fact that they, with the thought or the, the false premise rather that that uh, scripture is kind of what it what it, you remember Greg Kokel always said he don't never take a verse you can make the Bible say yeah. whatever you want so you know that's, that's a hermeneutical yeah. problem yeah that's the thing I mean if there's no no such thing as truth everything is just kind of a free for all. Let's uh, let's look at chapter two, uh, where Steve the historical roots of moral relativism. You got this in two parts. You have uh, ancient historical roots and contemporary modern roots. Yes, and um, you know I open up with you know I summarize I open up with Adam and Eve and the saint and. That's really where it started. Says you will not. That's as historical as you can get, right there. Yeah, that's about as historical. But that, I think I was talking about the philosophy there. But you know, we're in a Christian right. station, so right. you know, it, it all started with with Satan. That's where it started because I don't want people to think it started with philosophy. <laughs> I mean, this is a, this is a sin problem. Satan said sure. to Eve, "You will surely not die." He was purposely misrepresenting the truth when he said that about what God meant regarding death. Okay, so. Through moral grayness, all right, um, fifty shades of gray. Okay, through moral grayness, Satan confuses Adam and Eve as to what God meant by death. Nothing has changed, baby, in thousands of years. So, right. you know, Adam and Eve both walked with God and had no shame because they were in unison for God with God. Um, so, you know, and then we talked about remember the culture, what about morality? And I'm going to get up to answer the philosophical question. So what did Adam and Eve come out of? Why did Adam and Eve come out of the bush trying to cover up? And why did they do that? Because everything was made relative, Devin, and it was taken out of its proper and clear order into chaos. That's where it started. Remember, that's that's once you take God's ways out of you, you, you be crazy. You take God has an order. He's a very orderly God. Remember, seven days, whether you take that as literal or not. He did things in a progressive, progressing order in his creation, and, and everything he does is that way. Now, that's where it started. Now, yeah, we're talking about the there's there's a number of philosophical. Uh, I'm not a philosopher. Doctor Bridges, my counterpart, is he's the, the philosophy guy. But uh, there are a number of eras of philosophy. I, for to keep it simple, broke it down to the two the ancient historical, which actually are two, and then contemporary modern, which are another two. And I went back to, you know, one of the, when I was writing my book, my friend Donald Sanchez, you know Donald, he he was he was editing oh, yeah. those chapters, and he, he's like, man, you got to take this, man is the measure of all things. Every three, every three sentences, you got this sentence. But I was so compelled by it, and of course we had to edit a lot of that out, but uh, Protagoras, who was around circa, which is around around 481 to 320 BC, he made the assertion that man is the measure of all things. 
to me, that's exactly where we're at today, right? So if you're the president right. or you're governor or you're, a, you know, you're, you know, if you're a high school kid, I don't care. What, you know, to think that you're the measure of all things is to say that God is not. And then, so if you go to, I, I talked about on the on the contemporary side, I went up to David Hume, and um, with David Hume. Now, did you want to cover uh, Herodotus as well, or no? I don't, I don't know if you wanted to. Herodotus. You know, we've got yeah, we've got uh, we've got about fifty minutes left. So okay, whatever. You, yeah, Herodotus. Whatever uh, and this is all in the book in here. Anybody listening, they don't have to write it down. They can get the book. It's a lot. It clarifies. Herodotus. Is really the he was he was the father of history. He was the first historian to really document history, and and he uh, Herodotus uh, he's going back to like 484 BC to 425 BC, and he I call him the plurality of moral makers. In other words, he was he was a, a polytheist, and, he, and a polytheist is basically the belief in many gods. And to give you some examples of polytheism. Um, Mormonism is a polytheism, right? You can be many people can become gods of outer space, planets in outer space. Um, uh, if you look at uh, animism by the American Indian, you know they believe gods, gods of the, the, the trees and the rocks and all that. You have multiple gods, and Hinduism is 350 million gods and growing is a, is a um, is polytheism. So, you know when you he believed in many gods and. The problem with that is I, I made I made the assertion in the book that he also made a plura, plur, uh, a plurality of moral makers. This is the I mean, think about it. the first book on history has a guy written from a world view, not a theistic of one god, but of many gods. So I, I, I put those two as the, the the ancient, the contemporary. I jumped at the David Hume because. Uh, I think it was interesting. He was born in 1711, and he he passed away in 1776. I thought it was interesting. The year he passed away was 1776. Now he was a skeptic and a philosopher, and he's responsible for more than more than any other philosopher uh, for skepticism today. We say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, skepticism on absolute truth, on the existence of God, and moral absolutes, and um, you know, all kind of developed that uh but he this is what he said um he basically believed that object objectivity can only exist when accompanied by sensory experience okay let me repeat that objectivity can only exist when accompanied by sensory experience that what are your senses right your sense of smell feel sight hearing okay so what he's saying is Subjectivity versus objectivity, and um, um, while David Hume would not define experience, by the way, in and of itself, uh, and ob- he wouldn't define it uh, in and of itself as an object right. He would argue that that which can be verified through empirical sensory is right. And I was uh, Kirby Anderson's radio show, and I said, well, let me give you an example. I said, well, I got an idea. My wife loves to make apple pies. So you come into my house around the holidays, and you come in, and you go, man, that apple pie smells good. 
And by the way, I, you've got to use your facility, your bathroom, man. Where is it? We'll go down and make a left. It's the first door on your right. You go in, turn the light on, and there it is. Voila, an apple pie air freshener. Now, if you really want to impress me and you want me to really give true consideration to more relativism, take your sensory experience and eat the, the, the plastic air freshener. And then maybe we'll have something to talk about, you know. And... He got a kick out of that, by the way. Um, you know, the difference is experience. It, it, you know, experience doesn't define um, moral principles. It's not that it's not that experience can't verify truth. It just doesn't define it. And and by the way, since the 1960s and six since that this time, you know, the United States has been quietly moving to you know moving towards a quiet revolution of thought, marching towards the death of objectivity rotting from the inside out. And, you know, today, the thought that anything, especially moral absolutes, can be known for sure, we're called arrogant and extinct for thinking that way. But actually, we're not, because we know the end. Jesus wins. <laughs> I could say this is a Christian program. But, you know, you know, the idea is to, if people are listening, you know, God's not a... a you know, I take it from a guy who grew up. I lived in a paternity house, Devin, for four years. You know, I saw things that, that you know, that uh, and experienced things that uh, that I hope never to, the young people never have to experience. And it's not that we didn't have a fun time, but at the end of the day, God's ways are good ways, and they're much better than the world's ways. Right. Simple morality. Call number to call in, folks, is 760-542-3907. Of course, you don't have to uh, fully agree with us. Uh, maybe you have a question about moral relativism and some of the some of the objections that are posed to absolute morality. And uh, Steve is here and ready to take your calls. Let's um, let's see. I know you kind of touched on this a bit, but um, the 1960s explosion of moral relativism, secular humanism, and progressivism? Yes. Um, I'll summarize briefly with that. In the 1960s, in the 1950s, my mom says is the best era. I believe, I believe her. I, I, would, I would make the assertion that that the 1950s, if it wasn't one of the best, it certainly was the best. And I wasn't around in the 1950s, but um, but I was, but I I, I believe that um, it, it was probably one of the most greatest times to ever be along uh, around in, in, in the entire earth. And if you look at the my and if you look at the Supreme Court cases that that preceded the 1960s. Um, the liberal taking God out of the Bi- uh, out of schools and the Bible and, and and all that stuff. That's what really led to rebellion. Man's rebellion against authority. Man's rebellion against police. Remember the war, Jane Hanoi Jane, and all uh, all that stuff. You know, it's not that you know we live in a country with free speech. I get that, but rebellion against authority is not a proper stance for for anybody, especially for Christians. So what we had was, but we what what the, what the baby boomer generation was the recipient of a logical 
of a logical Western thinking, moral absolutes, moral absolute truth world. That's the world with Judeo Christian Judeo values that served the country and made us America that we became. Now, what happened is, through all that rebellion, remember we talked about the sexual revolution. Well, in the mix of all that, um, you had the Beatles, right? Remember the Beatles? Beatles had some oh, yeah. music. Oh, little, yeah. A little before my time, but I've heard of them. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, um, uh, they were... It, it, but here's the deal. You know who the... You know who the... Um, you know who the the, the uh, spiritual guide for for a period of time was for the Beatles, Maharishi Gandhi. Yeah, the giggling guru. Really? Yep. So they bought into Hinduism, and um, they bought into Hinduism. And so what happens is, you know, the whole idea of, I mean, in the fifties, you know, if you said I'm going to do yoga, I mean, you probably would have gotten a call from somebody, you know. <laughs> Right, taking you to the doctors, and so it wasn't a thought. But here's the point: yoga is based on most people don't realize it's on Eastern religion and Eastern philosophy on relativism. Even though they don't, they don't live. Nobody lives according to relativism, by the way. Nobody does. They they, they can't. Um, even in India, where they they do philosophically and religiously, but not logically and truthfully. Um, because you can't, or you can go to your bank account and go, hey, you know, listen, Devin needs a million bucks. You know, well, Mr. Gerfall, you right. have a million bucks in your account. Well, yeah, it's true for me. It's enough. You know, every, after a while, I'll get free room and board with the you know, FBI, and police will come and be happy to, to escort me away. But, but so from there, you had people dabbling in yoga. And by the way, I remember, I, I learned about yoga in a secular class at University of Maryland in the 80s by a, a secular, atheistic Jewish professor. He was a great guy, by the way. Nice, nice guy, anyways. Enjoyed his class. But I, I remember watching, he would play these videos of different things, and he played a, a video on yoga. And the guy said, yeah, he says, I can hold my breath. He says, I can basically hold my breath. The whole idea of, Devin, you know what, um, you know what the whole idea behind, what, the, the main exercise in yoga, you know what it is? I don't know. It's it's breathing, right? It's controlled breathing, and then you're relaxing, and you're you're you become in a trance, and you begin to you know you kind of uh, begin to recite uh, mantras, and it's to relax okay. you, and and it's that's what it is. It's a, that's where your new age stuff comes from. But he said in this video, he said, well, the whole idea is that you slow your you slow your breathing down in yoga to the point that you stop breathing. And when you stop breathing, what happens? You don't exist anymore. Once you don't exist anymore, then you be hit nirvana. You you hit, you hit the enlightenment. Cuz that's really what that's what that's what um you, when you get in eastern religions, you know, basically life is like a is like a is like a video. It's like it's kind of like a video um you know, a film. It's not real. It, it, you're, we're all oneness, you know. That's the oneness, the Brahma, the Brahman, and and so we don't really exist as individuals. It's just we're not, and, and that's why when you ask a Hindu, "Do you exist?" they'll they'll tell you either no or I don't know. <laughs> it's the New wow. Agers that lie. So yes, yeah, it's the New Ager Americanos that lie. Do you exist? They know they exist. Everybody knows they exist. So, Doctor Detzler, do you remember Doctor Detzler? 
Yes, yep, absolutely. He, he, he told a, cl- a story of a guy he was in, I think he was in Stanford, I think, and they were talking about truth. And he got up and he, he said, you, you, have, you, you have to be arrogant to think that absolute truth exists. And he says, uh, I think the professor walked over or one of the students walked over with a hot of boiling tea and he held it over his head and he said nothing. And he quietly got up and he left. In other words, if, 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 in other words, if it was not true that he existed, that was the question. And right. he did not know it if he had boiling tea poured on his head. And he, he knew he didn't have the answer. So it wasn't a violent thing or a smite on him. It was a, answering his question. So, you know, with that, you had Eastern thought. And then what happens is Eastern thought is relativism. It broke down the moral absolutes and the Christian Judeo values and the absolute truth and absolute morality. And we got to where we're at today. And, you know, when 9-11 hit, there were people saying, which is opening, what is moral relativism? I didn't answer the second part of the definition. You know, it's right for you, but not for me. The second one is cultural subjectivism, cultural you know, relativism, which says that each culture defines morality for themselves. You know, in, in other words, if, if, if they say that this is our culture, that jihad, flying planes to a building, if that's part of their culture, well, it's right from them. It may not be right for you, but it's right for them. And that's right. and what happened now. This is what you happen. If you went back to the 1950s, nobody would agree with you. But as Eastern thought basically just softened up the American resolve for moral absolutes and truth, and then it left it open to relativism. Remember what, what uh, um, you remember William Jefferson Clinton, our president, past president. Remember he had oral sex with um, Monica Lewinsky, and he goes to court, and he said, did you have sex with her? And he says, well, define sex. What is sex? And then they ask, well, you know, and then he got down to oral sex. And they said, well, what is oral sex? And they, and then he get, and then he asked a good question. He says, what is, is, you remember that? What is, yeah, is, and, and, yep. and, and the country gasped. And really what they were asking was what is truth? And the, and the American public really, really got, became divided because they couldn't answer a good question. What is truth? Because really you said what is is, but I think it's what is truth. So that's what happened. It started in the 19, it started in, in, in scripture, in the, in the garden. Then you saw the ancient philosophers made its way to academia through college professors. And now that, you know, what used to be just talked in the back halls of philosophy are now mainstream thinking. We are now a morally relative society. Welcome to America. Welcome to America. That is right. Well, let's let's go ahead and take a break for a few minutes and uh, give you a chance to uh, use the restroom or get some water. And again, we'll open up the phone line seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And we'll take a break and be right back. God bless. This is John MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? Well, that's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's Word and forget to respond. James said, if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror. This is not some casual glance either, but a careful observant stare. 
Yet even a long, hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The situation at the time of the flood was a situation of pure moral relativism, where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It sounds like a description that was written in yesterday's newspaper. And when God destroyed all of that, the descendants of Noah come up with an idea to do exactly the same thing. They're going to build their own city, a city that will endure. And the crowning achievement of that city will be the tower that reaches up to heaven, the Tower of Babel. For today's special offer, visit RenewingYourMind.org. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. Matters. We're discussing right for you, but not for me, a response to moral relativism by my good friend Stephen Garfalo. Steve, I wanted to play a clip uh, that is from Oprah Winfrey, and uh, you're probably aware of it. Uh, some people, 
Some people surprisingly have not heard it yet, though. I think it kind of deals a little bit with the issue, um, maybe not necessarily as much as moral relativism, but uh, the idea that there's no such thing as, as absolute truth. I want to yeah. play this clip, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Is that okay? Sure. A panel has been discussing the spirituality and the forces of God, but I also believe that there are two forces that are here with us, that we do have our, our, our gods that we can depend on, but there's also a power of darkness that we do need to be aware of. And, and that's you, where the choice is. Do you begin. believe that, uh, that you can choose between one or the other? Most, most absolute definitely. Yes. Now, now Marianne uh, Williams says in her book, Return to Love, that we're always walking in the direction of one or the other, that all of your actions in life, either you're moving toward the darkness or you're moving towards the light. Right. She calls it fear and love. There's this wonderful book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, which talks, that which, which is, anyway, it's a gorilla talking, but anyway. Uh, it talks about one of the points it brings out is one of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live That's and right. that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world, that there are millions of ways to be a then human how do being you please and, God? and many ways, no, but many paths right. to what you call God. That and her path crazy. might be something else and when she gets there she might call it the light. But her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. And I guess the danger that could be on that, I mean, it, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, I there could be couldn't possibly be just one way. What, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? There is one way and only one way, and there that is through Jesus. Jesus. There couldn't possibly be with because a million you people say in the there world. isn't. There couldn't possibly be because you say you intellectualize it and say there isn't. If no. you don't believe that, you're all buying into the lie. But that means you right. You think you think that if you if you are somewhere on the planet. If you're somewhere on the planet and you never hear the name of Jesus, you never hear the name of Jesus, but yet you live with a loving heart, you lived as Jesus would have had you to live, you lived for the same purpose that Jesus came to the planet to teach us all, but you are in some remote part of the earth and you never heard the name of Jesus. You cannot get to heaven, you think? And that is covered in the scriptures, too. We'll stop it there. I'm just curious on your thoughts for that, because... It would affect moral relativism if all kind of religious views are the same. Well, um, religions also tell you how to live your life and what's morally right and what's morally wrong. How do you respond uh, when we hear that? And that's kind of the, the thought, really, of, of today. That's uh, that's, yeah, that's the kind of the thought. How do you respond to that? Yeah, thanks. The, the moral law, first of all, applies to all religions. I mean, Hindus, Muslims... Christians, we all agree, Mormons, you know, Scientologists, we all agree with one thing, you know, how to, you know, that murder's wrong, stealing's wrong, etc. That's a given. You know, but but other areas of morality, like taking multiple wives, you know, or right. treating women as property, um, those are cultural Values. Those are things that come through cultural, and then and you have um, and and in what was interesting, <laughs> you know, everyone for a long time thought that Oprah was a Christian, and I, I like my favorite statement. Well, the most uh, unveiling statement 
from Oprah is that it's impossible to be one way. <laughs> really. So my first thought, my first response to Oprah is that, you know, you're just as intolerant as every other religion. Because Christianity says it's the only way. Islam says it's the only way. Hinduism says it's the only way. Now Oprah comes along and says they're all wrong in saying they're the only way. They all have to be the only way. So she's just right. as inclusive as and, and just as intolerant as all the other views. Now, you know, she's she's just partaking. And I, there's a, some great, I have some podcasts on that um, that deal with that. But it's pluralism or universalism. And uh, they're basically, uh, but, but notice how, but notice one thing about what Oprah says. Everyone else is wrong but her way. <laughs> Did you pick that up? Okay, but yeah, going back to morality, you're right. So if that's true, then that means whatever religion that you, you know, Boko Haram, listen, that's you know, that's their culture, so they should be allowed to kidnap young girls, make them sex slaves. I mean, that's that's according to uh, according to Oprah's logic, that's that's right because it's right for you but not for me. I'll go back to Sandy Hook. And this is what I say. If you raise that guy from the dead, the guy, the shooter, that they took out. And you asked him, was it right? He's most definitely going to say, yeah. He wouldn't have done it in the first place if he didn't think it was right for him. But I also think he would have said in general, no, it's not right. I, I just think that's what he would have said. Because he would have, he, would have, he would have adhered to the moral law, to nature's law. But for him, he would have also said it's right for me. What He wouldn't have done it in the first place. If he didn't think it was right... He wouldn't have done it. Right. At least, if not, if, at least if not right for him. Right. I don't know if that does that answer your question. I, I think I think I think that if you yep. look at if you look at Oprah's many of her shows, you'll see that her departure from absolute truth, absolute morals, morality, and the scripture of Jesus Christ. You'll see that every other area becomes watered down and relative. Every area. Wow. This falls like dominoes. <laughs> let's uh let's look at chapter four. Um interested in this chapter, the 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 morality and the in the morality and the media. Let's see. Yeah, morality and the media, the relative molding of the American mind. Yes. What an interesting um what an interesting uh, concept is, is, you know, you have um, what you have going on within the United States is, uh, you know, people. I think people figured out that that in, um, you know, when I was a kid, we watched a lot of television shows. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, oh, yeah. we watched a lot of TV. Now, what was on TV when I was a kid was very different than what's on the TV now. Uh, it right. Was. And you know, it's uh, if you look then, you didn't. If you look today, it's it's hard to find a program without New Age uh, movement in it. I mean, even Door the Explorers with crystals. It's pretty frightening, you know, that you can't even right. put a TV on. Put you in, and and but furthermore. If, I think I gave some statistics in there about the, um, and, and and I think it's gotten worse since then. But if you look at, um, if you look at it from there, you, you'll see that um, 
that the majority of the of the media are unabashedly uh, they, they they confess that they're liberal. Okay, and so you know, I mean, if you look at that, you you'll see that in the show. You know, everyone says, well, Fox is this way, CNN is that way. Well, the bigger question is who's speaking the truth. It's not, you know, what I'm saying. The truth doesn't right. really sit on the left or right. It's just the truth. There's no left or right to it. But, um, you know, I was listening. Uh, I, I get this. I get these little emails in in the morning for the different comedians. And uh, I got a, an email one morning from Jimmy Kimmel Live, and he said this, quote, On February 1st, 1887, the founder of Hollywood, Harvey Wilcox, bought the whole area. He envisioned the land as a utopian site for Christians to live a highly moral lives, free from alcohol. Uh, he's talking about Hollywood. That worked out well. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that? And Okay, it started as a Christian mecca. It really was. It did. And so, uh, you know, most of the program that comes out of Hollywood is terrible anymore. It's Everything is sex-laden, and it's all... It, I, I think the media is the chief agent of moving the liberal agenda forward, period. It is the mouthpiece. And you have to, if you're going to have free press, you really can't tamper with that. you got to fix the problem from the inside out. It's the reason why I wrote the book. Yeah, and that doesn't take a day. We didn't get here in a day. We're not gonna. We're not gonna depart in a, in a, in a, in a day. So, um, you know, the bigger question I, I I ask is, do you come to the media with a desire to be misled? You know, I think a lot of people go to the media with with a desire of what they want to get out of it. And do you tolerate being misled by the left or the right? You know, the far farness. You know, you just want the truth. If if the, the newscasters just and the movies just um, told report on the news. People can objectively make their own mind up. Now, secondly, Hollywood for years. Now I'm old enough, a little older than you. You know, I remember 25 years ago when they were Dr. Dobson was hooting and howling over the fact that every time Hollywood produced a family film, a real family film, it was a blockbuster. Do you realize right. every year the number one film is always a blockbuster? The year Nemo came out, Nemo passed every film. Every film. Wow. But Hollywood, for years, for decades, <clears throat> neglected to produce a lot of family films as they neglect today. Why is that? Is because they ha- their 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 agenda was more important than than right. than actually produce, than even money. And if you look at today. Right. Yeah, I mean, look at all the Christian films coming out. They're doing gangbusters. They're making, yeah, they're making a yeah. lot. Of, you know, they're doing well. People are hungry for it. Yeah, but God's you, Not you, Dead. I remember when when God's Not Dead came out. It was made on a very low budget, and yet, I mean, it was it was killing in the box office. So you, you're yeah. right. People or, or the um, the the facing of the giants and those those kind of movies. I think people, you're right. I think people like that, but for whatever reason, the media doesn't. <laughs> well, they they have an agenda, and, that, and it's starting to change a little bit. The Liberty Universities now, Kirk Cameron's involved with that. They're starting to produce Christians to go into Hollywood. The only problem is the first the first few waves are going to be like <laughs> they're going to be like you know D Day, Storm in Normandy. You know, I mean, uh, the infamous day. They're just it's you're going into such a 
I mean, the only thing worse than than going into the Hollywood system at present is is going into an ISIS camp. I mean, for real. I know that sounds like a real harsh statement, but you're really risking. It's hard to go in. Uh, I mean, Hollywood's not going to kill you. Uh, that's that's a, that's a good thing. But 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 they will. You you, you know you're gonna if you want to play the game, you got to play the game, and uh, it's tough to hold your absolutes. I had some some friends that had their daughters go in, and and boy, they really. It was very difficult. But I gave some statistics. 98% of all American homes... Oh, and by the way, do you realize that movie attendance has gone down dramatically every year for decades? So less and less and less people are going up. Wow. So, yeah, when when I was a kid, it was $2.50, $3 to go see a movie. And I remember when it went to 4 bucks, I was upset. I mean, what is it now? It's at least 8 Is it What is it, 8 $10? I don't go to the movies. Yeah, uh, and do whatever you do, don't buy a popcorn and a drink, or you'll oh, be broke. It's like a, it's like a hundred bucks to go to the movies. You know, remember they used to, when I was a kid. You know, they just we go see the movies in the afternoon. Here's a few dollars. But ninety eight percent of all American homes have televisions. Almost a hundred percent have one or more technical devices like a PDA. Um, the information we're getting, and and uh, Josh McDowell talked about this. I mean, the, the staggering numbers that are on YouTube are unbelievable. So we have to dominate the internet as well because you got to it's there, the bad's there. So you got to give you got to put the good in there. So, you know, um the builders, my grandparents, 1927 to 1945, they can recount the memories of the first television. My grandmother used to tell me when they got their first television. Baby boomers, 1946 to 64, they can't even remember a time without television. And then, uh, you know, here come along with my generation. I remember when MTV came out. I was a kid. And that was a new thing in cable. That was a big thing. When I was a kid, we had only had, I think we had 10 channels. My wife had three, you know, in the town she lived in. But, you know, uh, I remember my first white microwave. And, you know, I kind of miss, Devin, the days of having a phone on the wall. I do. Yeah. Yes, I hear you. You can't get away from those things, man. (laughs) That's right. Let's look at chapter... Chapter five: Moral relativism is moral relativism neutral. Yeah, how the I, position of moral neutrality is a core belief of atheism. Yeah, it, you know it's funny because my boy, I fought with my editor on this one, tooth and nail. She's awesome, by the way, and because uh, a lot of people think that relativism is a neutral position, but it's not. And what happens is this. I mean, I'll I'll go back to the William Jefferson, President Clinton example, okay? Um, What is is, you know, uh, people couldn't answer the question. And because they answer the question, they first, if you ask somebody, listen, is cheating on your wife having oral sex or regular sex right or wrong, back in that day, certainly, people would have said, it's absolutely wrong. Now what happens is he relative he made he brought more relativism to it by skewing bring it boil it down to what is sex and what is is, and he boiled it down to a relative question that really no one can answer because he made it relative. People, it's 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 he, he created some kind of neutral position that people couldn't really say it's wrong, and they but they also couldn't say it's right. <laughs> so who wins? Well, anything that's not right is automatically really the wrong wins, <laughs> you know. I mean, 
evil wins in that case because so there is no neutral neutral ground. And I think that's what a lot of people think. They think if we can just get rid of religion, you know, um, and I think a lot of heartache that and persecution that's going on now on the Christian church is just a backlash against Islam, which has led to a backlash on religion in general. And people think that atheism, in my opinion, is some neutral position where there's harmony. It, what they don't realize is atheism is what's, you know, it, it, it's it's what's caused most of the problems in the world in past. Through, you know, I mean, that's the chief religion of communism for the most part, and uh, not always. But um, there is no such thing as a neutral good ground. It's not. It doesn't work that way. God is good, perfectly good. Any lack of God is called evil. Evil is a lack of goodness. It's not a force in and of itself. And so to think that there's some moral neutral position is really, it's a fallacy. It doesn't exist. Does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. I think it needs to be brought out and, and, and pointed out. Let me ask you this. With, with the last um, few minutes, um, how, the moral argument. Kind of give us um, give us what is the moral argument, and uh, whether or not you find it persuasive or not. Well, first of all, I think that the um, the moral argument, in my opinion, is the is the uh, number one argument for the existence of God. So, and. And you talk about the moral argument for God, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Uh huh. Yep. The moral okay. argument for God. Okay. Because it's a moral argument for a theistic God. Um, is that, if that's what you're talking about, and it basically says right. every. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, sir. Okay. Every law has a lawgiver. Okay. There is an ultimate moral law. Therefore, there's an ultimate moral lawgiver. All right, let me repeat that. Every law has a has a lawgiver. Every law, right? Something's right or wrong. Every law has to have a lawgiver. There's an ultimate moral law. People who deny that, again, murder, rape, stealing, you disagree that those things are wrong. If they say no, they're acting irrationally. So if every law is a lawgiver and there's an ultimate moral law, it follows that, therefore, there's an ultimate moral lawgiver. Okay? And... Um, if the first two premises are true, then the conclusion has to follow is true. But do I find that as persuasive? Yeah, I, I think everybody agrees with that. All human beings do. You know, um, every every human being, and that kind of proves what it's what it's proving is the existence of morality points to what it's saying is this 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 moral law that's written on our hearts points to an ultimate moral law giver. That's what it's saying. You can't again. You looked at. Um, we talked about the uh, the, the different um, things that keep the Earth going, and the planets rotating in space, and the temperature of the Earth, and the angle. Um, and there's a word for those. And man, it's eluding me, and it's bugging me. But uh, it's, I was up in the morning. Uh, uh, anthropic principles. That's the technical word for those. Anthropic principles. But here's the moral law because you have different law, you have different arguments for the existence of God. You know the exo- exist uh, the theological argument, 
you have the the argument from the cosmos, you know, from from the and etc. But this is the moral law, and it's basically saying all human beings acknowledge that there is a moral law that governs all of us, you know, that right. that that basically it points to the fact that every moral law has a moral law giver, and so there points to a theistic god. Because you can't if you have if you have pantheism, right, or New Ageism, they have many gods, or polytheism, many gods, or all is God. Well, you got multiple components. Who then? Which one of those guys wrote the moral law? It has to be one guy who wrote the law. So you know, it comes from one unchangeable source. Uh, so it's very interesting. I think I think that's a great place to share the truth of God uh, in evangelism. And I think it. Uh, I think the moral law is very powerful. I gave a very simple breakdown of it. The book again goes into much greater much, much greater detail. But here's an example that I give. Okay, murder is yep. illegal, and who makes? I was talking with a guy in the YMCA, and I said, "Well, do you believe that absolute truth and absolute morals exist?" And he says, "No." I said, "Do you? Do you um, you got kids, don't you?" He goes, "Yeah, oh yeah, I got a little girl, little boy." I said, well, "What happens if someone raped your kids and murdered them?" He said, "That's disgusting." And he got all upset. Oh, understandably, I said, "Well, let me ask a question. What makes wrong? What makes murder right or wrong?" He says, "Well, Congress." makes it illegal. I said, okay, where does Congress get make it what's what's their foundation for them making it illegal? And I said, I, I studied criminal law and government politics at University of Maryland outside of Washington DC. I said, it's let me help you. It's called common law. I was told that in my secular class. Common law is basically the Ten Commandments, based on the Ten Commandments. I shall mur- murder. Well, underneath the Ten Commandments lies what? A theistic God of scripture. So if you take God out of society, and then you take you, you do away the Ten Commandments, you do away the Ten Commandments, you have no common law, then who makes murder right or wrong? Well, that's then left up to Congress and the Supreme Court. And as we've seen with Roe v. Wade, they don't always get it right. So right. the moral law, very important. And I think that the Supreme Court and I think our Congress – in in many cases has gotten it very wrong as they have ignored the moral law and moral absolutes in in turn for what's popular and keeps them in office against what they know is right wrong right um tell you what take uh take a few minutes here as we're getting ready to end the show give us some tips on how do we engage whether it's at work or school or or wherever it be uh, with those who who don't uh, hold to an objective morality, um, yeah. how do we how do we engage with them? Yeah, and I think as Christians, you know, we're called to share the love of Jesus Christ. I think everybody would agree with that. But here's the problem: you can't you can't talk about Jesus until you establish um, that the that the New Testament, the Scriptures. The New Testament and the Old Testament, but especially the New Testament, are the valid, superior documents on the face of the planet, which can be done. And you can't do that until you uh, validate, though, who God is and what God is. But you can't talk about who and what God is until you define what truth is. <laughs> and that's where we're at today. A lot of people, especially the millennials, you got to get down and show them that truth is absolute and it's not something... That's relative, and and by the way, moral morality fits in that bottom slot as well. So, how do you reach them? You know, I think by developing the Christian mind, which is through um, 
in my talk on reclaiming culture for Christ, uh, we we got to get back to discipleship first of all, and we got to raise up an army of believers who will begin to influence those around them by addressing and dismantling dismantling the thought patterns of our present age. You know, we, it's not like we're coming into a blank slate. Remember, there's no neutral ground. We have to we have to teach, especially the youth and older people, how to understand and respond biblically. We as Christians, how do we respond? Well, we have to learn how to respond not only biblically, but intellectually. We can't be anti-intellectual. Theologically, logically, and rightfully. Remember Dr. Geisler said in the one-minute apologist, uh, Bobby Conway asked him, he said, hey, Dr. Geisler, what's the most important class of seminary? He said, logic. <laughs> and it's true. You have to you have to be able yeah. to um you know, you have to be able to use logic in using the moral law and using some philosophy um in there. But I, I created uh I created the PAW strategy. You know, when you go to seminary, Devin, you know, I had to learn how to study. I'd been out of school for so long, so I was told to use acronyms. So, you know, I would be in Doctor Geisler when you you take his systematic theology classes, I'd be I'd be memorizing these big long um I'd make these big long things like the smelly dog, you know, and and each letter stands for something, you know. <laughs> oh, that's a smelly dog one. So I came up with a simple one for the book. It's called the PAW strategy. P A W. P. Be prepared mentally, emotionally, and with the right content to be able to answer the questions. That's not only that's biblical but extra biblical. A for the P and the A for PAW able mind, able in mind, have the ability and the opportunity to be ready to give an answer, to give an answer. So you want to be able in mind. That means a lot of things. You know, so you want to be prepared and then you want to be able with all this stuff that you have and being prepared. And that might be that you know, hey, being able you need to get make sure you get your sleep and you make sure that you keep reading and studying. And then the W in the paw willing to give an answer. If you have the P and the A, it doesn't really matter if you're not willing to give an answer that may not be accepted well by the hearer of the mainstream culture. Okay. So those are the right. three things that I listed. And there's a couple other things that the the book, you know, on here. And in some of the, the you know, you're going to hear things like, why? Hey, listen, you shouldn't cram your, from Dr. Uh, Turk and Dr. Geiser, you shouldn't cram your morals down your throat. Be able to answer a question using logic. You know how you answer that? Why not? Would that be immoral? <laughs> you shouldn't cram your morals down my throat. Would that? Why not? Would that be immoral? Or these are listen. These are not my morals. They're our morals. I, listen, right. you know, listen. The fact that we shouldn't hurt each other and kill each other is—I didn't make them up. They're you know, they're just as clear as two plus two equals four. That's logic. Relativists deny the moral law in one sentence and then they assume it in the next. Yeah, yeah, they do. They especially when they're arguing against uh, Christians or the you know the Bible or you know if, if moral moral relativism is true, then I, I don't see how you have much weight behind the complaints of you know God being a, a mean person in the Old Testament or something. You know, absolutely. So. Well, good deal, brother. Uh, enjoyed the show. Looking forward to having you back on again. Let me give uh, the, the website out, folks. Uh, you can learn more about Steve and his ministry at www.reasonfortruth.org. And be sure to check out the Reason for Truth podcast. 
and you can subscribe off of the podcast video page there on the website. And uh, is that a weekly show, Steve? Yeah, every Tuesday we we release a podcast. And there, it's, what's interesting about their podcast, Devin, is that sometimes they're philosophical, sometimes they're family rated, and sometimes a lot of times I do some uh, you know some radio spots and and we take them from there. So a lot of them are culturally related. Like I just remember Tuesday. Yeah, I think Tuesdays was on the on our religious freedoms in the balance. Yeah, we do Great. scripture. We put scripture in there. We talk about that type of thing, persecution. So. All right. Well, uh, Steve, appreciate you coming on. And like I say, we'll look forward to uh, getting you on again. Um, folks, uh, join us next week. We will have Rob Savolka on, who is a missionary uh, in Utah to Mormons. And July 24th, for people who don't live in Utah, is about as big as the 4th of July to a lot of Mormons. And so we are going to do a show specifically. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.